Well, let's continue in our worship. Our worship is not just music, as is commonly thought, but our worship is all the elements we do here in the service. And we now want to turn to God's Word and uh, hear God's Word and learn from God's Word and apply God's Word in our own beliefs and our own actions. Many of you, uh, if you weren't here last week, you might wonder why we're not still in Luke, but we, we finished the expository series on that great book last week. And that was a great joy to spend that time over the years with you in, in Luke. And I want to preach now a four-part series, though, over the next few weeks on the golden chain of salvation. Before we begin another book of expository preaching series, I want to make an exposition of this great passage. And, and I've entitled today's message, The Golden Chain of Salvation, Part 1, Foreknowledge and Predestination. So we're going to be in Romans 8. 29 through 30. It's a, it's a great passage. Many of you probably know Romans 8, 28. I want to read the whole section to you so you can get the context. Let's start in, in verse 18. And let's see Paul's reasoning. Why, why are these passages here? Why did he remind us of these truths? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Lord, we want to ask your help in applying this passage into our life, Lord. It is a passage often neglected in the modern church. A passage, though, that we need to understand, that we, that we need to find comfort in. You've put it here for our knowledge, for our comfort. Let us see the truth here. Let us see it so that it is indeed a comfort, not a, a passage to argue over, but one to seek you in and one to apply in our thinking. Lord, give me uh, clarity as I proclaim this message and let that veil come down from the hearts as they receive this message. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Believer, are you confident in your salvation, that you're indeed going to make it to heaven? 
Are you confident that you will be saved, that you will persevere until the very end, that Christ has not only forgiven you for your sins now, but that he always will until you go to be with him? And how do you know? How indeed do you know you will make it to the end? Certainly can't, we can't take credit ourselves that we will somehow persevere, that we're strong enough. If you've been through many trials and tribulations in life, you'll know that uh, that's very difficult to just continue to have faith every day. And we're thankful that the, that the Lord keeps us and perseveres us. But why and how? And, and how do we know that we will persevere until the end? Well, the, the answer that Paul gives here in Romans 8, 29 and 30 might surprise you. Since, since 18, since verse 18 that I began reading to you through that passage, since that verse, he's been discussing the sufferings that's come upon Christians. And he says, even the creation groans for this redemption, this restoration that we'll all receive if you're in Christ. And there'll be no more sin and there'll be no more persecution and there'll be no more suffering. That's the message that he's been proclaiming in, in that section. And he reassures believers that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us in our prayers so that we can endure the sufferings and in persecutions. Then he, he brings a very surprising thing, though, in verse 28. Did you see what he said there? All these sufferings are being used by God for our good. Why, why do you go through sufferings? It's, it's for your good. Sometimes to be disciplined, Hebrews 12 talks of that. And sometimes we don't even know. It's not because we've done anything. Like Job, we don't know why. But it is for our good, ultimately. It's for our good. How do we even know what that is and why that happens. Well, most Christians will seek Romans 8.28 for comfort. And they'll, they may have it memorized. It might be one of their favorite verses. But the popularity of the next two verses is not fared as well amongst Christians. It's not fared as well. And, and often it's because the truths there are sometimes rejected, sometimes resisted, and sometimes just forgotten. And yet these are the just as important as verse 28. The next two verses, 29 and 30 of Romans 8, tell us how God accomplishes the working of all the things for our good. Go back to verse 28 again. How does he accomplish this? The wording here in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What's that mean? Well, I said it's for your good that you're suffering. Okay, well, taking that apart now, Paul's going to explain in the words of the next two verses how that works out, how that comes to be, how we know for certain that it's for our good. Certainly the death of a loved one can't be for our good, right? I mean, certainly that, that young girl who was just killed on this road at midnight a few weeks ago, I mean, can that be for good for her family? How can that kind of suffering be for good? Well, I want to begin today by starting this series to help you understand that. In verse 29 and 30, we're going to look at all of these doctrines here. There, there's five of them, and, and we'll cover the first two today. But these are key doctrines in the faith. Key doctrines. It's an unbreakable chain, in other words. That's why I titled it that, the golden chain, the Puritans called it. A golden chain, because one of the Puritans said, it's almost as if God dropped a golden chain down from heaven. And once you grab onto that chain, there's no getting free of it. You're going right up to be with him. It's often called the golden chain of salvation, redemption, various terms for it. I just like the golden chain of salvation, of salvation. 
And it's unbreakable. You, you can't break any of those chains. If, if you are God's, you're not getting out of it, thankfully. We can't even lose our own salvation. John MacArthur says, if you could lose it, you would. And that's true. If we could lose it, we would. We can't even keep our keys in our house sometimes. I can't even keep track of some of where my kids are sometimes in my house. And yet we think we can keep our salvation. Now this passage here is applied to individual believers. And no one's lost along the way. These doctrines span from eternity past to the present age with our calling, with our justification in the next passage in verse 30. And those whom he foreknew are those who end up being glorified. So it goes into eternity future. This chain, it spans all eternity here. There's no dropouts along the way. There's no additions along the way. There's no subtractions along the way. God has planned it. God will accomplish it. God indeed will do it. These are really what's often called the Alps of true Christian theology. We're looking right here, starting in verse 29, from God's vantage point. He didn't have to tell us how it works from his view, but he did. He did for a purpose. These are God's mindset, God's view, God's vantage point. And we get to peek into his mind here as he reveals this to us. He's given us a window into his eternal mind and his purpose for believers. What could be more lofty than that? Moses uh, went up to see the burning bush and God told him to take off his shoes. And I almost feel like when we approach these doctrines of predestination and election that we're standing on holy ground. Sometimes we get Maybe if, if you've known of these doctrines, you can debate them and argue them and we make it too intellectual, but it's, it's the holy truth that God has given us that, that no other religion believes or teaches. And yet here's the Bible teaching predestination, foreknowledge, election. We're looking to the greatness and grandeur of the eternal glory of God. John Piper said it's one of the most weightiest matters in the Bible. This right here in this verse. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 13 sermons on it. I'm only planning to do four. He did 13. Here's what he said, that this is one of the most remarkable statements that the Apostle Paul ever made. Verses 28 through 30. It's one of the most comforting statements, he said, in the whole range of Scripture. There's really no exalted doctrine higher than this. Here is the ultimate doctrine, more packed with doctrine and comfort than any other in the whole realm of Scripture. You want to be comforted in your salvation. You want to have assurance in your salvation. Here it is and these passages, and these verses. So today I just want to focus on verse 29, give you the first two links and the golden chain of salvation. They're, they're, they're so related, we often think of them together. But Paul splits them apart to teach us here. And let's apply these verses to our lives. We have to understand the theology here. And, and my prayer is that if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ today, that you will realize you've been foreknown and you've been predestined by God. And it's absolutely certain you will be glorified. All you have to ask is, not am I elect, but am I trusting in Christ today? And if that's true, then you are elect, and you will be glorified. You cannot be lost along the way. You cannot lose your salvation due to suffering, due to persecution, whatever happens in your life. So let's look at this first one, this first link in the chain. Number one, God's electing love for us. God's electing love for us. God the Father chose to put his special electing love on some before the creation of all things, before he created the world. Let's go back to verse 29 there. For those whom he foreknew. For those whom he foreknew. It's the most important of the links. 
not because it's some higher doctrine than the others, but because how you understand that word, for new, will determine the rest of the chain. How we know what that word means will understand our knowledge of those terms following it. Justification as glory, glorious as that is, glorification as glorious as that is, we can be thrown off a bit on those terms if we don't understand foreknowledge. Because some will argue here that foreknowledge is just God looking into the future. That he knows something before it's going to happen because he looked into the future to learn about it. So if you're saved today, some people teach that God just looked to see if you would have faith and then he decided to elect you before the creation of the world. That's going to be conditioned on the fact that, that you have faith. I mean, God's waiting to see what you will do essentially to learn what you will do. God's never looked into the future and learned anything. God's not in time. He's outside of time. He knows all things instantly at all times. That's what it means to be omniscient. That's what it means to be omnipresent. God doesn't learn things. He's not processing things as they happen. He knows all things. He's planned all things. He accomplishes all things. He foreordains all things, the Bible says, that will come to pass. Paul does not say here that that God foreknew something about us or that something we would do. It simply says, he foreknew us. If you're a believer in Christ, he foreknew us. Of course God knows all things. He knows all things as they come to pass because he's foreordained them to happen. He doesn't need to learn as he goes. Paul's saying that God has done something specific here with regards to believers. He knew you in a special loving way. In a special loving relationship. Like a husband knows a wife. He knew that that because of that love, that that one day he's going to change your heart to believe and you'll be justified by faith alone and Christ alone. You see this word know in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, it, it means to know somebody, not just knowledge of them. I don't just know your name and what you look like, but often this word know means a very close, intimate relationship. Very personal. Genesis 4, 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And they conceived, or she conceived and bore Cain. In the New Testament, Matthew 1.25, it says that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. But I think the ESV here is a little more literal than the NAS. It says Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Joseph and Mary didn't have that close, intimate, physical intimacy that's found in marriage until after Jesus was born. That's the kind of know that we're looking at here. It's it's a close, intimate relationship. When Mary speaks to the angel, Luke 1.34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Literally, not virgin there, but literally, I've never known a man. The Hebrew word often conveys a special covenantal love. A special electing covenantal love that that God has decided whom he would put his love upon. You might recall Jeremiah chapter 1 where God says in verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. He didn't know just that Jeremiah's name would be Jeremiah, what Jeremiah would look like, but he's saying I knew you in a special loving way. Because he goes on to say, Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He set apart Jeremiah to be a prophet. Before Jeremiah is even born, God knew Jeremiah in that way. 
Amos 3.2, you only have I chosen, the, literally in Hebrew, known. You only have I known among the families of the earth. Israel's special to God. He set his covenanting, electing love on them. And he says, of all the nations in the world, it's you that I've chosen to love. Of all the families of the earth. Sometimes it's hidden in the Old Testament in our translations by the word chosen. But the idea is foreknown there. Genesis 18, another verse here with Abraham. Genesis 18, 17. For I have chosen him. Chosen him. And, and the word there is known. It's in the King James and the New King James. I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God chose Abraham. It wasn't Abraham's decision. God said, I'm going to set my love on Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God was the one seeking out Abraham. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Is Jesus saying there that he never knew people he created? That he didn't know their name? That he didn't know where they lived? He's not saying, I never knew you in that sense. Of course he knows those things. He's saying, I never knew you personally in a saving relationship. I never set my love upon you. And by the way, he says, you didn't live it out. You practiced lawlessness. You claimed, Lord, Lord, Lord. Look at what we've done. But he says, I never knew you in that way. I never knew you. You've never belonged to me. Never in a loving relationship with me. He goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They hear my voice. He, he, he speaks to them. They hear him. And, and why do they hear them? Because he says, I know them. I have an intimate, close love for them, an electing love, and they follow me. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. There's that relationship there with Christ. And it's not just a knowledge of facts. And it's not Jesus looking into the future here. He's saying, I know them in an intimate, personal way. We could almost translate the word for loved. I think that would have helped with some confusion here. If we just translated it maybe a little more conceptually into the English as for loved. For God, for loved a certain group of people. He for loved us. We see this again in the letters by the apostles, Paul, Peter, Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. You've come to know God, why? Oh, he almost puts a parenthetical here. To be known by God. God has made himself known to you in a, in a covenantal way, in a saving way. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. How do, how do you know if... If you've been foreloved, foreknown by God here, because you have a relationship with him now. You have a personal relationship with him now. Not just, I know Jesus, but you actually love Jesus and want to worship Jesus and want to follow him. And if that's the case, then you're known by God. That, that's how you know that you've been foreknown, foreloved, chosen. And I think Peter puts this together well. First Peter 1, 2. He's writing to all the saints. And he says, to the saints who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. In other words, God chooses certain people for salvation because he's already foreknown them. He's already foreloved them. That's what he says here. Who are chosen, all saints that are truly saved are chosen. How's that happen? According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. The Father has decided whom he would love and he's chosen to save them. 
One last verse from the New Testament here, Romans 11.2. Talking about Israel again. God has not rejected his people he foreknew. He's not rejected Israel. Don't, don't think that he has, Paul says. That's his whole argument in Romans 11. How do we know? How do we know he's not rejected? Because he foreknew them. He's put his love on them. It says over and over in the Old Testament. Nothing because of their works, not because of what they did. In fact, Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you. What a perfect passage for foreknown. He didn't know you because of anything you did, because you were so great. He didn't love you because you were so great. Why did he do it? doesn't really show us everything in the mind of God here, but it does give us a simple answer. Because the Lord loved you. That's enough for me. I, I don't need to pry more into the mind of God. As scripture says, God loved me, and that's why he saved me. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. Now, this word here, foreknew, means God's electing love for us. It fits with what the New Testament says, fits with what the Old Testament says. It's God's grace. That's what we mean when we say, say by grace alone. It's not just a, a cute slang. It means that it's God who did it, and it's only by his grace, his unmerited favor. We are nothing of it. He has chosen to do it. The Bible doesn't speak of our faith being the reason that God chose us. Faith is not the reason God chose us. He doesn't look forward to see whether you would have faith. God chooses people based on his sovereign will because of his grace, not because of anything what we've done, not because of anything we've done. If you're here today, this means that you got, you got to know God for loves you. Especially if you're a person in the faith, you, you absolutely have to know that. If you're not saved yet, you, you might be one of the foreknown for loved by God and you might not. We can't really say until you've expressed faith in Christ and you follow him. But if you already are doing that, you've got to know this. Paul says, you've got to know because once you're hooked up to that chain with this first one, you're going to be carried all the way through the chain. You're not getting off that train. Thank the Lord. I don't want to get off that train. It heads to heaven. It heads to glory. Why do I want to bring up my own power and will and free will and such? As if I could somehow lose my salvation. I, I once had a friend who came out of a charismatic church and he said he was always getting baptized because he thought he was going to lose his salvation. And he was always trying to speak in tongues because he had to prove to them that he truly was saved. And to this day, even though he's in a good reformed biblical church for years still struggles with this idea that he might lose his salvation because he grew up with that it was put in his mind at an early age and he still struggles with it believer you don't have to struggle with that because god for loved you he foreknew you and he will make sure it's carried all the way through to glorification well that's just the first one if we got that one right if we understand what the bible says about knowing loving and and we connect that to foreknown we can now look at the second one, which is God's predestined plan for us. God's predestined plan for us. God has fixed in advance the destiny. That's what the word means. He, he's fixed in advance the destiny of those whom he foreloved. He has decided what the destiny of those people would be. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he loved, that he chose to set his love on, he's also set their destiny in front of them. What does this mean? Predestined means to mark out. That's literally what the word in Greek means, that he's marked out ahead of time, beforehand, he's predetermined, he's foreordained. 
This is not a, a hard doctrine as far as hurting us. It's, it's not hard in that sense. It's hard for us to understand and grasp sometimes. But it's not one of those hard truths that we just don't want to accept because it's painful. It should be comforting. It should be comforting. If we're prideful, if we want to fight against God and do our own thing, sometimes this can be hard for us, but it shouldn't be. He's marked out beforehand. We can't change the definition of the word. It's right there inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul mentions it here. He mentions it in other places. This group that he foreloved, that he foreknew, they will be called because they've been predestined to be called. They will be justified because they've been marked out by God. They've been predestined to be justified. They will be glorified because he set that in motion. He's chosen to do it. Sometimes we use the word election, God's sovereign election. And that really incorporates both of these right here. Both the, the foreknown part and the predestined part. It's all part of God's choosing, God's election. Go with me to Ephesians 1. I'd like to show you how this is used in other passages. On uh, Ephesians 1, there's at least two mentions here just of the word predestination. There's also a mention of election. Ephesians 1, just forward in your Bible a few books. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us, that's the word election there, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose believers to be in Christ before the world was ever created and founded and formed. The ultimate purpose, to be holy and blameless before him because there's, there's no other way. There's no other way to be with God forever and ever except to be holy and blameless. And he chose to put us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then it says, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That's a great passage. I don't want to say too much about it because I want to save it for when we get there in Ephesians. But election, predestination. Why, God? Why? Who am I to be saved? Just says because of the kind intention of his will. Instead of fighting it, why don't you accept it and just be glad? Not prideful. But God's grace saved a wicked sinner like me. That's what Paul means. I'm the, I'm the worst of sinners, and he came to save me. It's amazing. Look at verse 11. Ephesians 1.11. Here it comes up again. Uh, he's talking here. Uh, he says, In him, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance. How do we obtain this inheritance? I mean, how does that even happen that God could give us something like eternal life and, and life in the kingdom and a resurrected body? It says, having been predestined according to his purpose. How do we inherit it? Because God has predestined us to do so. Those who trust in Christ have been marked out beforehand. He's already taught on it in previous verses here in chapter 1. And now he says, it's according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Why did he save me and not someone else? in my family, or in my neighborhood? This is your answer. According to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. I don't know. It wasn't because of me, but he had a plan, because it says he, he had a will. He had a desire to do something, and so he saves the people to accomplish that desire. And those people, by the way, have been predestined. For loved, then predestined. Psalm 139.16 also talks of this. In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. God had already laid out, the psalmist says, he's already laid out the plan of my life before I had even had a day to live, before I was created, in other words. 
This is comforting. Why do we fight that? So much of a modern philosophy, uh, you can get whole books on free will. The free will, it's a whole segment of philosophy, written books and lectures on man's free will and what this means for us. I can't find that in the Bible, that we can somehow decide and make God do what we want. But I see a lot of texts saying that God does what he wants and it's for his glory and our good. That's comforting to me. So there it is in Scripture. There it is in Scripture. But we need, to, we need to deal with some of the objections. I've already mentioned some of them, but some of the objections out there. This is a very controversial topic. It shouldn't be. It should be comforting. But, but it really has been for centuries. People hear predestination and election. And they began to resist it for various reasons. Some will say it's just not in the Bible. I had a guy come to my house one time and he said, uh, he knew I was a Christian, we were planting a church, and he, he said, uh, you guys believe in predestination, don't you? I said, of course I do, it's in the Bible. He said, no, it's not in the Bible. I said, well, pull out your phone. And so we sat down and had a little Bible study. He was a service guy working on my house, and we had a little Bible study on the back porch. I got my Bible out and we went through Romans 8, 9, Ephesians 1. I said, look, it's mentioned 17 times in the Bible, this election, chosen, predestination. 17 times, just election, the word chosen is dozens of times as well. And he said, well, it's in the Bible, but it's not what you think it is. But we were making progress. We were making progress. Uh, The second reason people give is that it's too mysterious or or dangerous to look into. So if if you believe this and you're showing somebody, you might come across these. It's not in the Bible. Yeah, it is. Okay, I just showed you. It's too mysterious or dangerous. In other words, don't, don't tread on this holy ground here. Because it's dangerous. It's God's realm. And sometimes people want to deny the fact of predestination because they don't know why God chose us, so let's not even ask any of those questions about it. And of course, we're not to pry into the hidden things of God. We're not to pry into the hidden things of God. Even John Calvin, who was known for bringing this doctrine back during the Reformation in his writings, he he said, To pry into the hidden things of God would be to to go over an insurmountable mountain or to try to look into the darkness. You're not going to see anything. You're not getting over that mountain. But the revealed things, though, the Bible says, the revealed things are given to us and to our children, to all generations. It's in the Bible. It's revealed. Why? To help us, to comfort us. We have to study scripture and we have to see what God has to say. And even if that hurts our pride sometimes, we just, we have to do it. Or even if it's something we haven't grown up learning or knowing or no one's ever told us before, once we see it, we have to now deal with it and ask, what is God trying to teach us here? Some say this doesn't matter. It's not important. All that matters is the gospel makes people stumble. That's kind of a third objection. And I would just say, did God make a mistake here by having Paul write it? The apostle Paul put it in scripture. God didn't make a mistake. It's in Paul's letters. It's in Peter. It's in the gospel of Luke. It's in the gospel of Acts. Jesus talks about it. Did God not know people would resist and stumble over it? Yeah, God did know people would stumble over it. That's part of the reason he says he puts things like this in scripture. But the main reason in the New Testament is for believers to be comforted again. It does matter. It is connected with the gospel. That's why Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined and then justified and then he will glorify. That's all connected to the gospel. Others say this can't be true because man is responsible for his sin. His choices, his sin. I think Paul again would ask us, did you not read my whole letter to the Romans? You skipped to chapter 8 
I started getting upset at what you read. And I think Paul would go back and say, read chapters one through three. All right, like, like verse 120. Everyone is without excuse in Romans. Or Romans 3, 9. The Jews and Greeks are all under sin. A person must have faith in God to be justified. I mean, he covered that in, in chapters four and five of Romans. And then six and seven and eight are about sanctification. Now that you've been justified, and how to be comforted in that salvation, how to grow in that salvation. He even says specifically in, in Romans 3, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He's saying, of course, we are liable for the choices we make. Of course, we are responsible for the sins we commit. But on the opposite end of that, those who go to heaven, they don't get there by their own choices, by their own works, by their own thoughts and actions. It's all of grace. So God will hold man responsible for his sin. But God looks at Christ for our salvation. That's the glory. Is we, we cannot earn it. But Christ has done it for us if you're in him. You know, even faith is a gift. You know, the Bible teaches that later in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. There's this idea. It's all of God's grace. He's made it happen. He's foreloved. He's predestined. He's regenerated the heart. He's called. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So God does it of his own grace, but he works through your faith. He's ultimately sovereign over it, but you are definitely part of it when you have faith, of course. You didn't earn anything with that faith, though. Paul goes on to say, that's not of yourselves. Faith is not of yourselves. Grace, obviously, is not of yourselves. Salvation is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. You see, if you had faith and your neighbor didn't, then you could boast that you'd done something. But if you realize the scripture says even that faith comes from God, no more boasting. That's from God. Praise the Lord. I hope he saves my neighbor too. I'm going to tell my neighbor about the gospel. Jesus said God's election comes before faith, though, when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If anyone's coming to Christ, Jesus says, the Father who sent the Son to save and redeem a people, that Father will draw them to Christ. What's he talking about? Election, predestination. God is sovereign over everything. Man is, of course, responsible. Both of those truths are in the Bible. God doesn't ask you to fully understand how it all works out. Sometimes we, we resist this because we can't make sense of it all together. We've got to study, we've got to try, but in the end, it doesn't really matter if you can make perfect sense of it. By faith, you believe that it's true. Another objection here. Number five, it, it takes away our free will, they say, to choose God. And at that point, I just ask, where's that passage on free will? I mean, where is it in the Bible? And sometimes folks will say, well, it's right there where he tells us to do something. Yeah, he does tell us to do something because that's what we should do as his creatures. But he's nowhere saying, nowhere saying that you have the ability to overrule God. That you have the ability to save yourself. That you have the ability to even choose God and choose Christ outside of him changing your heart. All I read about free will is, is in Romans 3, uh, 11 through 12, about the free will to sin, the free will to run from God. That's the kind of will that we have. As a sinner, you don't think about it. You just do what you want. As a believer, you say, wow, I had a will then that was just to disobey God, and now he's changed my heart. I have a will to obey him, but all of that is under his sovereignty. Now, this last one I'll throw out there is that it kills evangelism. If you believe in election, if you believe in predestination, uh, that's often um, rejected sometimes because people say that kills evangelism. I mean, if God's going to do the work to save them, 
Why do you have to do anything? And there's been a few people, a few. There's very few. You'll have a hard time finding them that are, that are called hyper-Calvinists who literally say, we're not telling anybody the gospel. We're just going to sit back at our church on Sunday, tell no one, not proclaim the gospel. God will bring them and save them if he wants. Now, often people make it sound like everyone believes this. You'll have a hard time finding any of those folks. But try telling Paul that it kills evangelism. Here's what he said in 2 Timothy 2.10. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it glory. It didn't stop him from doing evangelism. It was the actual fire that made him go do it. For the sake of the elect. What's Paul doing? He's going out preaching the gospel to Gentiles. He's getting persecuted. He's getting beaten. Death threats, shipwrecks. You can read in scripture of all the things he goes through. Why does he go through that? He says, for the sake of those who are chosen so that they can obtain that salvation which they were chosen for. It didn't stop Paul. It was what drove him. John Calvin, he didn't write a lot on predestination. He wrote a chapter on it in his institutes and, and people say that he somehow invented the doctrine. He was just recovering it from scripture here. He sent 2,000 evangelists back into France. He trained up men as pastors. He sent them back into France. They all died. They all got killed. They got martyred by the Catholics there. It was Calvin's school of death. Calvin's school of death. He sent so many evangelists back. He sent, he sent two to Brazil. Almost everyone that left his school and preached the gospel died under persecution. George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist preacher in American England, believed in the doctrine of election. And he said, you must be born again. That's all he preached. The crowds of 30,000 people in Philadelphia in the late 1700s. The most evangelistic preacher probably ever on American soil. William Carey, the father of modern missions. We would not have overseas missions today if God hadn't providentially raised up William Carey. And he said, we've got to go to people. We've got to go to India, he says. And you know what his reason was? You know why he said we've got to go to other countries like India? Revelation 5.9. Revelation 5.9. That Christ has, has shed his blood and has redeemed a people out from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Not every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but people out from those tribes, out from those tongues, out from those nations. And William Carey said, I've got to go because God has people there that are elect. And they're not going to hear the gospel unless somebody takes it to them. Because even though God has chosen people, he uses men and uses women as the means by which to deliver the gospel. That's why we're to go. That's why Paul says later in Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher? How can they hear unless someone takes them the gospel? It doesn't kill evangelism. It's the fuel to do it. You're guaranteed success. Look up John MacArthur's um, sermon on sleep theology, I think it's called. A theology of sleep. And he just says, look, I go home every night and sleep perfectly. I don't worry about if people are going to get saved because that's in God's hands. I just proclaim the message as best I can. It's up to God what he does. I tell everybody that I can about the truth of the gospel. It's up to God. Martin Luther said that this was a comforting doctrine. The guy who started the Reformation said that predestination is a wonderfully sweet thing for those of us who have the Spirit. Spurgeon said, I'm persuaded that this doctrine is one of the softest pillows. I love that. It's a soft pillow upon which the Christian can lay his head. It's one of the strongest staffs upon which he may lean in his pilgrimage along the rough road. He goes on to say, this is funny, he goes on to say, many a Jonah who now rejects the doctrines of the grace of God, doctrines of election and such, 
only needs to be put into the whale's belly. And he'll cry out with the sound is free grace, man. Salvation is of the Lord. Sometimes we, we pray for other people to be saved. And what do we say? Do we say, God, just let them exercise their free will? No, we say, God, save them. God, save them. Why? Because he's the one who does it. Yes, we have to have faith. We have to proclaim the gospel to those so they can believe. But we pray that God would just save them. By their own free will, they're not going to get there. Of course they're not. But what are we predestined to do? Back to the passage now. What are we predestined to do? What's, what's the goal of this marking out beforehand? What's our destiny that God has, has forloved us to go and do? Well, certainly to be called, and we'll get to that in the next sermon. But Paul stops in this sequence here and he adds a phrase in between the chain. And he looks, he looks further ahead to the ultimate goal of predestination. You see it in verse 29, Romans 8, 29. The purpose of predestination is so that God uh, chose certain people to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the ultimate goal. It's not for our benefit, other than the fact that of course we'll be saved, but it's for the confirmation to the image of his son, to make us like Christ. Again, not because of anything you've done. But he's going to save us and change us to make us like his son. To be conformed into that image, into that likeness. To be Christ-like, we could say. That's what it means. That God planned beforehand that we would be like Christ in glorification. That's the goal. He specifically says the image of Christ. This, this should make us think back to Genesis. And remember, Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. That was one of the reasons that God did it a certain way is to create us in the image and likeness of him. We're to be his representatives. We're to, we're to be his vice regents upon the earth. But, but Adam and Eve fell into sin and they corrupted and they marred that image. They still, we still all have it. It's being restored if you're a believer. But it will be ultimately restored when Christ returns and we have our resurrected bodies. That's the goal. To be like him now as we continue to grow to be like him and to fully be like him when he returns. We're no longer to be like Adam. We're no longer to be in that image. Predestination points us further uh, into the deliverance from sin and from death. Again, a comforting doctrine. Don't you want to be conformed to the image of his son as a believer? Well, what's God's ultimate goal in conforming us? Well, he goes on to say, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Yes, we get that benefit. Yes, we get to be conformed into his image, and that's why God predestined us. But ultimately, it's about Christ, and it's about God. It's got to be. It can't be ultimately about us. We, we're part of it. We get the benefits. Praise the Lord for his grace and salvation. But it's got to all point to Christ, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Paul says later in Colossians that he's the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Why did God choose me? It wasn't because of me, but whatever the purpose was, I know eventually, eventually it's for the purpose of being like Christ so that he would be exalted as the firstborn among many brethren. Not only is, is Christ the sur surpassing preeminent one, in creation. But he's literally the firstborn of all believers. He's the firstborn of, of all believers. He was the first to be resurrected in his human body. 
who was the first to ascend and go to be with God, as we spoke of last week. And he's got a fully resurrected body, the first one to have that and to be in heaven. That's the goal, is for us to be brought into the glory of his image before God and eventually upon the earth as well. God planned all this before the foundation of the world. That, that every believer here today would be part of the coming kingdom of Christ upon the earth, the eternal state where the, the heaven comes down to earth and the new Jerusalem, that we would be there to worship him and to glorify him and to exalt him. And the point is, how can God break any of these promises that he's given? You can't lose your salvation if you're truly trusting in Christ because he's already planned it out. He's already marked you out and he won't forget you. He won't drop you. He won't lose you. Paul goes on in Romans 8 to say, who can separate us from the love of Christ and the love of God? No one can separate us from Christ. That's the point. He opens that up even more after this passage. How could that happen? How can anyone lose their salvation if they're, if they're truly in him? Yeah, you might know people who've said they were a Christian and later said they weren't. But we look at this passage and others, we, we realize they never were truly saved. That's the only way we can put all this together because God doesn't lose anybody that's truly saved because he's foreloved them. He's predestined them. So through our suffering, through our groaning, God's working all these things for our good and that's going to end in our glorification. That's the purpose. It's because God has chosen us. He's bringing us through salvation's unbreakable chain. We've been justified. We're waiting for glorification. And it's all happened because he chose unconditionally to set his love upon some and to mark them out for salvation, for calling, for justification, for glorification. God's going to bring all the saints to glory. It's not a passage we should run from, spend too much time arguing back and forth about. It's right here in Scripture. Let's just teach the truth, believe it, follow it, and let it assure us. Amen? Now, if you're not a believer, that doesn't apply. You don't even know. Sometimes people say, how do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I'm elect? The first question is right. How do I know if I'm saved? That's a good question. You will not know if you're elect until you exercise faith, until you have the Spirit, until your heart's been changed, until you trust in Christ. So if you're not trusting in Christ, then this sermon is kind of nice and philosophical and interesting. If you're trusting in Christ, it's a beautiful passage. So you want to be one of those who are trusting in Christ so this can comfort you. If you're not, it should be scary. It should shake you up. It should make you wonder. Is God going to save me? How, how does that? No, trust in Christ. That's what the Bible says. Lord, I pray this morning that you would reaffirm this doctrine in our minds. It's here. It's in Romans. It's in 1 Thessalonians. These new believers in Thessalonica, Paul writes to. It's in Ephesians, 1 Peter. It's in Revelation. It's all throughout Scripture, Lord. You're trying to comfort us. You're trying to help us. Trying to build us up in the faith. And you will do that, Lord, as we seek your word, as we pray that you will reveal these truths to us and apply them in our heart. I pray that all would see this as God's truth today, your truth. It's helpful for us. It's inspired there for our correction, for our building up in the faith. And I pray that you would do that for our church today. In Jesus' name, amen.